0: The Salem witch trials are one of colonial America's best-known scars. The seven-month period of accusations, fear, and executions spread like wildfire. On every paper, across the seas, and into modern-day America, we constantly see reminders of the hysteria that plagued Massachusetts in the mid-to-late 1600s. But little is known that in our tiny state of Connecticut had its own witch trials, a generation before the infamous Salem witch trials. There were two witch panics in Connecticut. The Hartford Witch Panic from 1662 to 1663, and the Fairfield Witch Panic of 1692. In these years, there was a 29-year gap of quiet with no executions, more than likely due to the common sense that Governor John Winthrop Jr. provided. Here's some context as to why these witch trials were even a thing. It is known that Puritans lived in a world of black and white earthquakes, comets, floods, thunderstorms, and everything unexplainable was the mysterious workings of the Devil. Only strong-minded, pious men and women could resist the temptations the Devil brought. Men and women who became lost to God to serve the Devil as witches needed to be stopped before they harmed others, as was the common belief. The belief in witchcraft has been a part of Puritan life long before they settled in the New World, so much so that it was a daily strife. Believing they were free from evil in this new settlement of Hartford, Connecticut, Thomas Hooker and John Winthrop, Sr. brought 100 men where they then began the newly beginning America's first convicted witch trial of Alice Young's of Windsor, Connecticut. Little information is known about her life, other than a vague line from Winthrop's journal in 1647 stating one of Windsor's arraigned and executed at Hartford for a witch remained unknown until 1904, when a diary of Colonial Windsor's second clerk, Matthew Grant, stated May 26, age 47, Alice Youngs was hanged. With old state records, it is believed that the gallows used to hang Alice were built in Meeting Square, the location of today's old state house on Main Street. Though most hangings likely took place in the colony's south pasture of today's Dutch Point near where Irving Street meets Albany Ave, There were many capital laws established for the new state in 1642 that came directly from England and Massachusetts, which were used for these witch trials. Such as, and it's a long list, no man shall worship or idol another besides the Lord God or they be put to death. If anyone is found to be a witch, they are to be put to death. If anyone speaks blasphemy of the name of God, they are to be put to death. Murder upon malice, hatred, cruelty, or guile be put to death. Bestiality will result in death. And lastly, if you were gay, you'd be put to death. That's a lot of death. In Connecticut, the prime interrogation methods were sleep deprivation, isolation, and intense psychological pressure. But sometimes the infamous water test would be used. If the accused witch floated, they were guilty of witchcraft, as a witch could not be submerged in the purity that is water. This eventually turned into the accused being cross-bound with a rope, where their left thumb was tied to their right big toe, and the right thumb being tied to their left big toe. Even educated people believed witches were to blame for natural disasters. We love to think that if we went back in time, we would be more rational and be able to prevent these events from happening. But that's because we have learned from these events like this, and take those lessons with us. We have new knowledge and science to explain why cheese molds, why thunderstorms happen, or why the crop this year is less fruitful than the previous year. People of Salem and 1600s Connecticut did not. To them, it made sense that the devil was behind their shortcomings. Emotion and imagination could outrule fact. Everything the colonists believed was learned and bred through fear. Connecticut was a new land, far from everything they all knew. Their religion offered them little solace and no comfort, and according to Cotton Mather, wearing the least known evils are not to be tolerated. Records show that smallpox broke out in Connecticut in 1647 and 1648 alongside influenza. While these illnesses were running rampant, nine Weathersfield colonists were captured by Pequot natives in 1637. The constant fear of massacre from the natives was always on their minds, and their weekly sermons were always gloom, doom, and death, showing the Puritans that their wickedness and sufferings were manifestations of God's wrath. Carol Seeger Fuller, descendant of an accused witch Elizabeth Seeger, stated, To read the records of Connecticut's trials 300 years later, is to recognize that, in the 17th century, every day was Halloween. The Puritans believed they held a progressive standpoint on trying witches. They believed the Old Testament scripture served as a strong foundation but scrapped practices that were inappropriate. Interrogation techniques like burning a witch with red-hot iron pokers or boiling water to them were primitive and insufficient. Only practices that were effective were added to the Connecticut's new law books. You could be investigated if two or more people suspected you of a witch, if you argued with someone and they suddenly got sick, a close friend or family member was accused, or if you got angry while being investigated. Though these may be reasons for accusing a person of witchcraft, Connecticut followed colony law procedures set by England and Massachusetts Bay Colony. Yes, you could accuse a woman of being a witch if your cow suddenly got sick after arguing with her, but you had to go through a set of regulations. First, you had to file an official report with the local magistrates. After this, they would examine the accused person If teats or devil marks were found and there was enough gathered information, they would send it all to Hartford to the general court. There, the court would determine if it was worthy of trial, and if it was, then the accused were sent up and a trial was held. Goody Garlic was a woman in 1658, was accused by her neighbor Betty Howell. Betty said she was being pricked by pins, then died the next day. There was also the problem of odd timing with black cats on Goody Garlic's property, threatening speeches, That sow and piglets that died, and even more weird things. Goody Garlic was sent from East Hampton to Hartford to be examined. During her examination, it was said that she had no fear of God in her eyes. Though this was said, she was found not guilty. So many believed that once a woman signed the devil's book, which Goody Garlic was accused of, she would seek revenge with the power Satan gave her, or this gave permission for the devil to use her form to do dastardly deeds. Men even believed that a witch's power could make their genitals disappear. Women were also suspected because of weakness of gender. Matthew Hopkins wrote The Discovery of Witches and believed searching and waiting were best, meaning he'd make the accused witch sit for 24 hours and if they were a witch, their familiar would come and feed from the witch. Other techniques were cutting of the arm. If they did not bleed, they were a witch. If no devil's mark was visible outside on the skin, they were cut to see if the marks were inside. It was believed that witches had a familiar, a cat, a rat, crow, snake, or any common animal to carry out its work. This familiar is said to suckle from the teat of their witch upon their devil's marks. Similar to the Salem witch trials search for witches' marks, Connecticut practiced the same. The water test was also used, where they would tie the accused to a chair and toss them in the water or, as stated before, tie their hands to their feet and drown them. Fun fact, between 1644 and 1647, more than 300 women in England were executed by Matthew Hopkins. Margaret Jones was the first woman to be hung in Massachusetts before the Salem Witch Trials began. Remember the waiting period of 24 hours to see if a familiar would show up? Well, court records show that Winthrop stated in a clear light of day, Margaret Jones' familiar, an imp, showed up and suckled from her teat. The next woman, Mary Johnson's confession in Connecticut on December 7th of 1648, was passed through the States due to Cotton Mather. He wrote the detailed familiarity Johnson had with the devil. This same day, the jury dismissed the accusation of another Wethersfield woman. Catherine Palmer, who was given a fine and a warning for unruly behavior, was let go on good behavior bail. Palmer was accused again in March of 1662 suspected for the death of an eight-year-old Elizabeth Kelly. In all, eight people were formally charged for the death of Elizabeth Kelly. Three, and possibly a fourth, were executed. Weathersfield residents Catherine Palmer and James Wakeley were both among the formally accused, yet neither was tried. Both names appear in Rhode Island's records shortly thereafter, suggesting they fled for their safety. Here's the story of Elizabeth Kelly. She was eight years old when she died mysteriously after crying out that Goody Ayers, not Goody Palmer, was picking her, sitting on her chest and choking her. She had been walking home from Goody Ayers' house one evening and laying in bed started crying out that she was being pricked by said Goody Ayers. Days went by with the same complaints that turned to screams and then illness. Her last words again were accusing Goody Ayers. Examination of her body showed that her underarms were black and blue, where the horrid stench the magistrates could not stand. The body was still limber, one account states, but these people clearly did not understand the process and changes of rigor mortis when the body stiffens up, or liver mortis, when the blood pools in the body. Elizabeth's father refused to bury her body until the courts were able to determine if it was witchcraft that killed his daughter. John Winthrop Sr., the normal physician was out of town, So they had to bring a Guilford doctor over, which took five days. At this point, the body was decaying for almost a week. The physician, Brian Rossiter, performed the autopsy at the graveside. Historians say it was the first complete autopsy in Connecticut and the first autopsy in colonial America to be performed for a witch trial. But all of the six preternatural findings Rossiter found were clear signs of a week's worth of decomposition. More than 300 years later, H. Wainer Carver II, chief medical examiner in 1993, explained that Rossiter made many screw-ups. This could have been pneumonia and sepsis, he explained. Sepsis, being a fatal blood infection causing delirium. The choking feeling of sitting on her chest, making her breathing constricted or swallowing hard, could be achalasia, abnormal constrictions of the esophagus. Goody Ayers did not have a real escape. As a while before her trial, she supposedly told Anne and Samuel Barr, neighbors of hers at the time, that while she was living in London, a young, handsome man came courting her. But when she went to accept the courting, she saw that he had hooves instead of feet. When she did not show up to their date, the young man got so mad, he ripped iron bars off a nearby gate. This creature that could have been the devil only made her more guilty. Both Goody Ayers and her husband were forced to take the water test. According to Increase Mather, known for discrediting spectral evidence in the Salem Witch Trials, said in Essays for the Recording of Illustrious Providences, when laid upon the water, swam after a manner of a buoy, a sign of guilt. Goody Ayers and her husband broke out of prison with help from friends and fled to Rhode Island, leaving everything behind, including their eight-year-old son. Upon this event, following the death of Elizabeth Kelly, but unrelated, Elizabeth Seeger and Rebecca Greensmith were two more women accused of witchcraft in Connecticut. Seeger was accused three times between 1663 and 1665. In her second hearing, she was acquitted, and in her third trial, she was convicted of adultery. Rebecca Greensmith of Hartford, Connecticut was executed. There were 11 people executed of the 34 accused and convicted, making this a 1 out of 3 ratio. The Winthrop family was known for their scientific thinking and progressive beliefs. Governor John Winthrop the Younger was a physician and an alchemist. John Winthrop Jr. was the son of founder John Winthrop Sr. and probably believed in witchcraft, but was sensible enough to believe that not everything unexplainable was diabolical and not all magic is evil. To be an alchemist, you have to have some understanding of the occult. Alchemy, the study of trying to turn iron and other materials to gold and manipulate natural elements to many, is a type of witchcraft. On top of this, the 1660s were tough for the new colony. After Oliver Cromwell overthrew British military, King Charles II was put back on the throne. The likelihood of Connecticut becoming an independent state from Massachusetts was not looking good. Fighting in New Haven on swearing allegiances to the king caused several small villages to move to the Hartford colony. But Hartford was already dealing with their own issues, causing more people to move up to Hadley, Massachusetts. Without Winthrop Jr., who was in England negotiating a charter, everything was a wreck. The accusations of witchcraft in Connecticut started in 1647 and continued into 1720, but no one would be executed anymore as of 1633. Although accusations continued into the 1700s, the execution of Mary Barnes in 1663 would be the last. She was probably accused by another woman who was on trial in Hartford. She sat in jail for three weeks before her hanging. Due to this, Winthrop, just like Increase Mather, urged spectral evidence to be discredited in the trials, as it was the prime source of evidence at the time. After this, 12 people were tried between 1664 and 1691 but none were executed. In Fairfield of 1692, a seven-year-old French servant named Catherine Branch was an employee of the Westcott family. The Westcott family is what today's Westcott Cove section of Stamford is named after. While Branch was out picking herbs, she began feeling a pricking sensation in her heart, where she then fell on the ground in convulsions, swallowing her tongue. Today we call this epilepsy, but in Branch's 1692, they called it witchcraft. After she regained consciousness for several days after, Branch said she was seeing visions of cats inviting her to a banquet, offering her gifts, and if she refused, they would throw rats at her. Among these rat-throwing cats, Branch explained that in the garden, she would see an older woman in a white silk hood and blue apron. More evidence piled on as the descriptions of new visions got more vivid. But eventually people started questioning Branch's descriptions. Between two young women named Elizabeth Lawson and Mercy Disborough, Catherine Branch accused many other people of witchcraft. Marks were found on Elizabeth, but not on Mercy, when Branch begged them to be searched for witches marks. When this evidence was still not enough, as the town knew both girls were good, but each had their flaws, the magistrates and the courts could not come to a decision. The Fairfield magistrates then had both girls subjected to the water test, where they both floated. It was described in some documents that they floated like corks. Though these two girls were kept in jail, Branch's convulsions and accusations still continued. It was believed that if you held a naked sword over your heads of those being bewitched, they would fall into unstoppable fits of laughter. In a conversation, while not knowing this, two people held a naked sword over Branch's head and nothing happened. Again, the jury could not come to a verdict, sending Mercy and Elizabeth back to jail to resume the trial in a month. And this time, Elizabeth was found not guilty, as was Mercy, and the magistrates issued both girls a stay of execution and demanded that the methods of the trial were untrustworthy, so both girls were given pardons. I end my show with another woman being accused of witchcraft in Fairfield of 1653. Goody Knapp was accused of witchcraft, because the magistrates of Connecticut wanted more information on a woman named Goody Staples. But as a woman who did not want to add fuel to the fire that was raging, Goody Knapp responded, Take heed the devil have not you, for you cannot tell how soon he will have me say that Goodwife Staples is a witch. But I have enough sins to answer for already, and I will not add this to my condemnation. I know nothing of Goodwife Staples, and I hope she is an honest woman. Goody Knapp was convicted due to witch's teats, as the many women in Connecticut. She came under suspicion during Goody Bassett's trial. Catching wind of the accusations people were throwing Knapp's way, Goodwife Staples told the authorities that Knapp had no more teats than any other woman. Officer Roger Ludlow, Puritan leader in Connecticut at the time and founder of Fairfield and Norwalk, was present at Knapp's execution. Documents show that Knapp was hung on Black Rock Turnpike in Bridgeport roughly at 2470 Fairfield Ave, where there used to be a mill and a house. During the execution, it is said that Goody Knapp, asked to speak to Ludlow, stepped off the plank to whisper in his ear. After she was hung and cut down, Goodwife Staples ran over to the now dead woman and demanded to see the teats that caused her execution. When no one responded, Staples continued to strip the body in the search. When she found no evidence of the damning teats, She pleaded with the other wives to come and see and exclaimed, Will you say that these are witches' teats? Here are no more teats than I have myself, or any other woman if you but search your body. Sometime after this scene, the judges that condemned Nap to hang made Ludlow pay the Staples family 10 pounds for calling Goody Staples a liar and pay the court five pounds for the fees of the trial. Four centuries later, after the first person to be executed for witchcraft, descendants from the 11 executed lobbied the General Assembly to pass a resolution condemning the trials, exonerating those convicted. Though this failed several times. Again in 2009, they lobbied Daniel Malloy, but he refused, saying it wasn't his place to exonerate the victims of crimes that took place centuries ago. Even though at the time, the trials were lawful, why exonerate our citizens wrongfully accused so long ago? These Puritans were protecting their people from witches who wanted to do harm. And after all, God says we shall not suffer a witch to live. Today we recognize the convictions were unfounded. Mob rule has left its scars on America, from witch hunts, lynchings, and the segregated South. Even today, the term witch hunt is still used when we receive an unjust search for truth. But to those who feel the victims of crimes against humanity centuries ago should not be clarified, I say, It's really cleaning the name of our state and its history. Acknowledging what happened was such a tragedy and an outrage.